0: Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. This is in connection with Lord's Day 33, which speaks of regeneration and conversion, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing us from death to life. So we'll read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So far from chapter 2, let's also turn a page forward to Ephesians 4, verse 17. Ephesians 4, verse 17, and we'll read through verse 32. Every Sunday in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism as a summary of Christian doctrine. And we find ourselves this week in Lord's Day 33. That's on page 549 of your books of praise. There, the question is what is the true repentance or conversion of man? It is the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ, and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith, in accordance with the law of God and to His glory, and not those based on our own opinion or on precepts of men. So far, the Heidegger Catechism. Brothers, and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, let me begin by reading to you a short excerpt from the the, uh, conversion story of Rosaria uh, Butterfield. I'm sure some of you have read her book, and others among you probably have even heard her speak. The book is called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, and if you haven't read it, I, I do recommend it. She was a lesbian professor of English and women's studies at Syracuse University in New York. Let me just read a short excerpt from her book. She writes, After my tenure book was published, I used my post to advance the understandable allegiances of a leftist lesbian professor. My life was happy, meaningful, and full my partner and I shared many vital interests aids activism children's health literacy golden retriever rescue our unitarian universalist church to name a few it was hard to argue that my partner and I were anything but good citizens and caregivers the lgbt or glbt community values hospitality and applies it with skill sacrifice and integrity I began researching the religious right and their politics of hatred against queers like me. To do this, I would need to read the one book that had, in my estimation, gotten so many people off track, namely, The Bible. While I was on the lookout for some Bible scholar to aid me in my research, I launched my first attack on the unholy trinity of Jesus, republican politics, and patriarchy in the form of an article in the local newspaper about promise keepers. This was 1997. Well, after she published this article, she received many, many responses, thousands of them, and she divided them all between hate mail and fan mail. There was one letter, though, that defied those two categories. It was from a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, and it was a kind and inquiring letter. And she writes this. She says, This pastor, Ken Smith, encouraged me to explore the kind of questions that I admire. How did you arrive at your interpretations? How do you know that you are right? Do you believe in God? Ken didn't argue with my article. Rather, he asked me to defend the presuppositions that undergirded it. In his letter, this pastor invited her to dinner with his wife. And there she says something unexpected happened. I'll read one more short excerpt. She says, Ken and his wife, Floy and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way that I had never heard before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, and yet full of mercy. And because Ken and Floyd did not invite me to church, I knew it was safe to be friends. I continued reading the Bible, all the while fighting the idea that it was inspired. But the Bible got to be bigger inside me than I. It overflowed into my world. I fought against it with all my might. And then one Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover and an hour later sat in a pew at the Syracuse Reform Presbyterian Church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I reminded myself that I came to meet God not to fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell vomited into my consciousness, consciousness and gripped me in its teeth." But the Bible promised understanding after obedience. I wrestled with the question, did I really want to understand homosexuality from God's point of view, or did I just want to argue with him? I prayed that night that God would give me willingness to obey before I understood. I prayed long into the unfolding of the day. When I looked into the mirror, I looked the same, but when I looked into my heart through the lens of the Bible, I wondered, Am I a lesbian, or has all of this been a case of mistaken identity? If Jesus could split the world asunder, divide marrow from soul, could he make my true identity prevail? Who am I? Who will God have me be? And the, 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 the chapter goes on describing the anguish that this professor felt at watching her whole world and her whole identity unravel, while at the same time discovering within herself a new joy that God himself had planted within her. Well, the reason I share this story with you is because it's a beautiful story of repentance and conversion, and that's the topic that the Catechism wants us to think about this afternoon. And I share it with you because I know that Her experience does relate, if it's certainly not identical to any experience of any one of us, and yet it does bear similarities that hopefully you will be able to relate to. It it reminds us of the wonder of God's recreating work within a fallen, lost heart. And we see it even in ourselves, as God stirs up new desires, as God kills and and defeats old desires wrong desires within us. And so with that story in mind, we're going to read uh, or turn to our text again in Ephesians and consider how God does these very same things also in our lives. The theme of the message is, in Christ we are a new creation. We'll see first where this renewal comes from, second, how we experience it in our lives. Well, the work of repentance and conversion, also called Regeneration, also called being born again, we saw that earlier this morning. It's described in the Bible with all sorts of different metaphors because there's not any one single metaphor that, uh, that that's capable of portraying everything that regeneration is. As we saw uh, earlier from John, John describes regeneration as being born again. That's the, the term that the Lord Jesus also uses in in uh, John chapter 3, that the change that God works in us is so deep and so complete, so thorough in, in our entire life, that it's as if we had been born again into a very new person. Another metaphor that's used in the Bible, you can find this in Jeremiah, he describes it as putting a new heart into a person, taking out the old heart, putting in a new heart. The old heart is like stone, he says. It has no feeling. It's incapable of repentance. And God takes that out and puts in a heart of flesh. A heart that is capable of feeling sorrow for sin and capable of bowing before God. There's another one in Ezekiel. He describes regeneration as something like God giving life to old, dead, dry bones. And yet another Uh, metaphor in in scriptures where the Bible speaks of regeneration as like planting a seed of life where before there was none. So Peter speaks of the imperishable seed that's been planted within us. In our own text in, in Ephesians, regeneration is described as something like a resurrection. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and yet God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with, with which he loved us, even while we were dead, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him. Now we might ask, in what sense did we used to be dead? What does Paul mean by speaking of us as, as having been formerly dead? Well, he describes it in, in Ephesians 2, in the first three verses, He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So notice in this metaphor, you've got dead men walking here. So obviously when scripture speaks of us as dead, it's not thinking of of a literal death as if we're walking around like, like zombies. But he says, you were dead in the sins and trespasses. There's a slavery, an addiction to sin that makes us as good as dead. says you are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived, all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, along with the rest of mankind. So, according to Paul, that's what it's like to be dead to be following Satan, the prince of the power of the air, to be blindly obeying the desires of our flesh with no spirit of God at work within us. That, he says, is death. Because it's deadness in relation to God. It's God for whom we were created. And to live without Him, to live without His work in our lives, is as good as death. But you notice Paul says, God being rich in mercy made us alive together with Christ. That's the work of regeneration. Taking a man or a woman who's as good as dead and making him or her alive in Christ. Well, One thing we need to recognize then is that repentance, conversion, regeneration, whatever you want to call it, is the work of God. We need to see that. And Paul's very clear about that. God made you alive. Dead people don't choose to come back to life. They don't revive themselves. They're not capable of making that sort of choice. And that's also true, then, of of really all the other metaphors that Scripture uses. Uh, Regeneration, in in every metaphor, it shows that regeneration is the initiative and work of God. Uh, You don't choose to be born, and you don't choose to be reborn, Dead people don't choose to come to, to come to life. A heart of stone doesn't choose to get replaced by a heart of flesh. In each of these, it's the work of, of God. And Paul emphasizes this very clearly in our text as well. He says, "...God raised us up so that He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in, in us, in kindness towards us, in Christ Jesus." He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are His workmanship. So he emphasizes this is from start to finish the sovereign work of God. That's why in a number of places in the New Testament, repentance is even called a gift. That repentance itself, though we know it's something that we do, we repent, and yet Scripture says that's the work of God. It's a gift. Well, how does God carry this out? We had a great quote from the, from the, the Canons of Dort earlier this morning explaining this. And when we, when we do that, when we explain the work of, of God in, in bringing us to life, the goal is not to try and sort of explain away the work of God, to try and break it down into pieces that... That we can understand as if it, it sort of happens uh, through formula, like, like God uses a certain formula and it always happens that way. Well, Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3 the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from, or so it goes. He says, There, uh, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we can't explain away the work of the Spirit or, or reduce it to a simple formula. But at the same time, when the Spirit works, we can see His work and we can observe the means that He works with. And the first of those means the one I want to focus on the most this afternoon. The first of those means is the preaching of the gospel. The Lord Jesus said in in John 10, My sheep will hear my voice. We may not know from our, from our vantage point who all those sheep are out there in the world that have yet to, to be regenerated, but we know uh, that they will come when they hear the voice of, of the shepherd. So the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses is the Word of God. Same in creation. If you think all the way back in creation in Genesis 1, the means by which God created the world was through His voice. He spoke And it came to be. Well, the same is true with recreation, with regeneration. Uh, God speaks. Christ speaks to an individual through the preaching of His Word. And that's the the means that the Spirit uses to grab that heart and to change it, to to replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. So regeneration begins with the, the Spirit opening someone's heart to hear the Word of God. Uh, You can read about this, for example, in Acts 16 when Paul is preaching and and Lydia hears his preaching. And it says in in Acts 16, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was spoken by Paul. You see the sovereign operation of the Spirit grabbing her heart, opening it so that she would hear and understand what Paul was saying. So Paul also says in in Romans 5, uh, faith comes from hearing and hearing By the Word of Christ. That's the birthplace of faith. So through the Word, the Spirit brings people face to face with their Creator. It's a terrifying experience for those who are dead or those who are in rebellion against Him. When we're dead in our sins and, and trespasses, as Paul says... The thought of God is, is a terrifying thought, and that's that's why we flee from Him. That's why uh, you think again of, of Rosaria Butterfield's story and how she hated God. She She was fleeing from Him, and when she was confronted with His Word, it was anguish for her. That's the old nature, resisting, rebelling against God. But God, through His Word, seeks us out and, and finds us and, and forces in us and causes our defenses to crumble before Him so that we, we cannot help but see Him. We cannot help but see the truth of His Word. And that's what, what we see in, in, in her story as well. As much as she hated what she was seeing in God's Word, she could not help but see it. And as we see God in His glory, as He reveals Himself to us through His Word, we see also our own sinfulness and, and God's judgment standing over us. And, and don't miss, brothers and sisters, the role of, of recognizing God's righteous, holy judgment against your sin. The role that that place, uh, that, that, that has in, in create. Excuse me, in, in regeneration. And we know the gospel is good news. And it's the, it's the good news of the gospel that changes a heart. And yet, with that gospel is a message of judgment. And that message needs to be there. Now, we might think of the Lord Jesus' own ministry. In, in Matthew 4, it says, Jesus came preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. There's a, there's a warning implicit there. Uh, You think of uh, Jonah. When Jonah came to the Ninevites and he came preaching, 40 days and this city will be destroyed. And that was the means by which God brought them to repentance. You think of Peter's sermon to the Jews where he, he told them how they had crucified the Messiah that God had sent to the point that they responded, Brothers, what shall we do? God used that message of judgment to bring about conversion. So we should never be afraid when we're witnessing to our friends, neighbors, uh, to others that God puts in our life, we should not be afraid to to also speak the message of God's judgment over sin. That's that's a tool that God rightly uses. People say, well, you're just trying to scare me. And yes, God's Word is trying to scare us because it's speaking the truth. That judgment is facing us apart from His grace in Christ Jesus. And so when the Spirit works through the Word, He brings us before a righteous and holy God. And we need to be brought there in order to be brought to repentance. The knowledge of God's judgment is very often the first step towards repentance. It's not that true repentance is is only based on, on fear. Paul says elsewhere that perfect love casts out all fear. But repentance does often begin with right Holy fear. The knowledge of God's judgment is laid out in Scripture very clearly for exactly that purpose. And that's true also in in Rosaria's life. It began with a pastor who was willing to speak to her the hard questions of God's Word, searching out her motives and and her assumptions. Do you believe in God? As you reflect on on how you're going to answer that question, you cannot help but think of God's judgment. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's what happens when when we boldly, but gently and lovingly bring the Word to bear on on the lives of of our friends, loved ones, neighbors, and those whom God puts in our life. The Word of God... Does the work. All we do is bring the Word of God to them. And that's what this pastor then did for for Rosaria. And as she picked up up the Bible and and began to read it, the Spirit worked through that and pierced her heart and and split her world and her assumptions into pieces. She describes it as an anguishing process, and yet it was a process that ultimately led to, to her new birth. She began to see her sinfulness the way that God sees it, something that none of us ever want to see, to to realize how how sinful we really are in God's eyes. She began to fear God's judgment. She she talks about how she thought of herself and all of her her friends and loved ones in hell under the wrath of God. The Holy Spirit was working in her heart, producing repentance and fear. When your lives, just as in Rosaria's, Regeneration begins with the Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts, using the word that's in our ears, taking that word and bringing us to to realize its its implications. The Holy Spirit also uses the word to to further the work of repentance, even over the course of your life. And that's our second point this afternoon, how we experience this renewal. Before we get into that, let me just define some terms, because there's a point of Uh, confusion or stumbling here in the the catechism. The question in the catechism is, what is the true repentance and conversion of man? And it's a strange question because it it lumps repentance and conversion together. I don't know if you've thought about that or noticed that. It lumps them together as if they they mean the same thing. But in the way we use the terms in English, they don't mean the same thing. Uh, For us, There's a difference between them. When we talk about conversion, if you you talk about my conversion or someone's conversion, we're talking about that single point in their life when they went from non-Christian to Christian. Whereas uh, when we talk about repentance, we're referring to any time in, in a person's life where they turn from sin to God, even if they've already been converted, if they're already regenerated. So conversion is one time, Repentance is ongoing. But the Catechism just lumps the two of them together, and it does that for a good reason, because Scripture itself talks about these two as if they're one and the same thing. Take Colossians 3, for example, where Paul says, "...you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ." There's the one-time work. you died. It's past tense. It happened in the past. You've died and your life is hidden with Christ. But then only two verses later, he says, Therefore put to death whatever is earthly within you. There's there's an already and a not yet in the Christian life. In regeneration, uh, when the Spirit brings us to repentance, He unites us to Christ so that we know we're saved. That's the the one-time, the already. It's a one-time event. New life is planted within us. We suddenly have eyes to see the glory of God, the, the ugliness of sin. We have new hearts that are capable of loving Him. That's the, that's the one time. But even though we're made alive, the old man, the old nature, pieces of the heart of stone, you could say, are not entirely gone yet. They're not entirely out of our lives. And that's why we're commanded to put the old man to death. That's why we read from Ephesians 4 as well. Ephesians 2 talks about the one-time aspect of, of Christ's work. And Ephesians 4, in Ephesians 4, Paul commands the Ephesians not to walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, but instead he says, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And he says, be renewed. So what is renewal? Is renewal a one-time work or is it an ongoing work? Well, it's it's both. There's a, a renewal where God takes the old heart and puts in a new one. And there's renewal that's an ongoing. He says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So instead of overly distinguishing the one time and the ongoing, the catechism lumps the two of them together. Even though the Holy Spirit brings us from death to life once in our lives, there is a single moment where the Spirit does that. Even still, repentance and conversion are, or ought to be, an ongoing daily reality in the Christian life. We're, we're constantly being called away from our sin and towards God. And so the Catechism describes it primarily as an ongoing daily process. It's the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. It uses those, those ongoing verbs. One more thing uh, needs to be said. Although the initial moment when the Spirit regenerates us and brings us from life to death, it can be a dramatic moment for some people. You think of Rosaria Butterfield again. It can be a dramatic and memorable moment. But for many others, it's a gradual uh, process. And not every Christian can pinpoint the day or moment of their conversion this is where Baptist churches often go wrong because they insist on this moment of conversion, a conversion experience that every Christian ought to have. And most Baptists can, can tell you the exact day and perhaps the exact hour in which they became uh, Christians. And, they, and that does happen for people. There, there can be. Think of Paul. There can be an exact hour in which they went from dead to, To alive. But for many Christians, it's an ongoing process. The Lord Jesus never gave an age at which we are born again. It's true, He does say we must be born again. So the nature with which you're born cannot be the only nature that you have. You cannot enter the kingdom of God without a new nature that God gives you. But the Lord Jesus never gave an age. For when that happens, for some it's a dramatic moment that happens in adulthood, and again you might think of of Paul literally knocked off his horse. That's how dramatic that moment was. We might think of the Philippian jailer who, when he when he found Paul and Silas in prison uh, after an earthquake, he, he trembled and fell on his knees and said, "Sirs, what must I do to be saved?" There's a dramatic turnaround in his life, and I'm sure some of you. Uh, most of you know people that have had this dramatic turnaround in their life. You might think of Zacchaeus as well, the tax collector who, uh, who Jesus met and whose life was drastically changed from that day onwards. But there are also plenty of examples in the Bible of people who grow up, who, who grew up knowing and loving the Lord from as far back as they can remember. You might think of uh, Timothy. Paul writes to him in, in 2 Timothy 3. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says elsewhere, uh, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. This is something that he grew up in and was surrounded by. You might think of uh, David as well. In Psalm 22, he says to God, You are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. This is the experience for many of us uh, as well. Even more strongly, uh, David says it in Psalm 71 verse 6. He says, Upon you I have leaned from before my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb and my praise is continually of you. The experience of many Christians is one of knowing God and loving Him and living their lives before him from as far back as they can remember and there's nothing at all unbiblical or or less christian about having that kind of conversion experience. You think of the instruction given to parents all the way back in Deuteronomy 6 to not only love the Lord with all lord your god with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, but the very next verse to teach these things diligently to your children talk of them when you sit in in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Or as Paul says in Ephesians 6, uh, raise your children in the fear and instruction of the Lord. It's part of the, the amazing covenant blessings that we have that our children, most of our children, will not even have a conversion experience because it's been their entire life's experience from as far back as they can remember. That's a blessing from the covenant and not something that we should despise or think less of than, than some dramatic conversion experience. And that's not to say that that we simply inherit the faith of, of our parents. Regeneration is is always a unique work done in an individual's heart. And it's not to say that there isn't some initial moment. It's just to say that it can and often does happen before we can even remember. And for some of us, perhaps even before we are born. That's the testimony of David. And so as parents, too, we should be careful not to overly insist on some moment of conversion. uh, Or especially not to treat our, our children as if they're sort of not yet Christians. Of course... We should be watchful. Of course, we should uh, not assume that they are Christians. We know the wind blows where it wishes. And we should be praying every day for their regeneration. But it's wrong to assume that they cannot be Christians until they reach a certain age. And it's actually dangerous to treat our children in this way. To teach them that they cannot be Christians when in fact they might be Christians, is to deny, to possibly deny the work of the Spirit in their lives. It's as if we, we have them recite the catechism uh, at a young age and they say, I, I am not my own, I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And then we snatch that away and say, no you don't, not yet you don't. Well, that's, that's dangerous and it's wrong to deny the work of the Spirit in their lives. We should be watchful, we should be praying but we should also embrace the blessings of the covenant and the normal means by which the Spirit works faith in the hearts of the next generation. And so then, putting putting all of this together, regeneration, whether it happens at age 2 or age 20 or 50 or later, is always the work of the Spirit bringing us from death to life. And it results... So That's the one time. And it results in a lifetime of, of repentance and conversion. The Catechism describes that process as the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. And you can see it so, so clearly and so powerfully in, in Rosaria Butterfield, Butterfield's testimony. And I know that many of you have experienced the, the same things in your own lives. The dying of the old nature, to grieve, with heartfelt sorrow that we've offended God by our sins and to hate it and flee from it. What Christian has not been through that? What Christian doesn't experience that over and over? And the coming to life of the new nature, a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and a delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. What Christian doesn't experience that? It's an ongoing experience. Both sides of that are an ongoing experience in the Christian life. And we're called to it again and again and again. Every time we are turned towards sin, God works on us and turns us back away from sin and back to Christ. And so we should recognize also this dying of the old nature and coming to life of the new. There are two things that happen simultaneously. They happen at the same time. We grieve for our sin even while we rejoice in God's mercy, sometimes in the very same moment. As the Holy Spirit calls us to repentance and conversion, our lives also begin to change. We understand that repentance is not only grief for sin or saying sorry to God for sin. It's not only rejoicing at God's mercy, though it must be both of those two things, But it's also more and more hating our sin and fleeing from it. And loving and delighting to live according to the will of God in all good works. Husbands and fathers, you can lead your family in this by beginning with yourself. Your children need to hear you, and, and mothers as well, confessing your sins when you sin against them and repenting of it before them. Whenever there's sin that needs to be confessed, And repented of. One pastor that I I read while preparing for this sermon, he he divided repentance into three aspects confession, contrition, and change. It's a good way to think about it. Confession is your words. Part of repentance is naming the sin, acknowledging the sin uh, without blaming others or, or making excuses. It's saying, Yes, God, I was wrong. Yes, God, I am guilty. As David says, in Psalm 51, against you, you only have I sinned. Contrition is our emotions. It's grieving for our sins. You might think of the repentance that Paul saw from the, the Corinthian congregation. He, he once rebuked them because of a member that they ought to have, have put out, and And then he marvels at their repentance in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. That's contrition. It's the emotional side of of our uh, repentance. And then finally, change is the final part of our repentance. It's not only confessing our sin. It's not only feeling sorry for it but it's also hating it and fleeing from it and loving and delighting in doing the will of God. We see this especially in uh, chapter uh, 4 of Ephesians. We read only a small part of it and he talks there already about the new lives that, people are to, to, that Christians are to live. Think of the thief, let him steal no more, but instead work with his hands. It's, it's an entirely new life. And that's just the beginning. The part we read is just the beginning. Paul goes on for two more chapters describing what that new life looks like. And that's, that's where we're going in the next several weeks. For the next 10 or 11 weeks, we'll be looking at the Ten Commandments, the summary of God's will. And as we do that, if we do it with open hearts and open minds, allowing Christ to speak to us, it's going to involve some of that ongoing repentance and conversion. It's going to involve God showing us ways in which we're still sinning against Him. Showing us ways in which we're still failing and falling short. And it's going to require of all of us confession, contrition, and change. Learning to hate our sin and to flee from it. And it's also going to give us opportunity to live out the love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. We want to change. It's it's a hard process. Every time we go through the Ten Commandments, it's hard. God confronts us, but we want to change. And for that, we need to learn and study the will of God. So let's prepare ourselves then in the coming week to begin hearing the Ten Commandments again. And, And let's pray to God that, He would be at work preparing our hearts and opening our hearts where they still need to be opened. Taking out the heart of stone where it needs to be replaced with a heart of flesh. And giving life to dead bones that might still be within us. And as we do that, looking carefully at His will for our lives and how He wants us to change. Let us turn from our sin and turn to God and discover what it means to live a life of joy and delight according to the will of God. Amen.